Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Lights and Mastery and today I'm excited to have Mikhail Teva, who's the founder of Teva Capital that has backed 20 AI startups and achieved four successful exits. Um, he uh, has invested in startups like IDR&D, Cyana, and serves on the board of Cherry Labs, Windmill, and others. Welcome to the show, Mikhail. Hello, hi, Rahit. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, uh, you know, really excited to have you on board. Um, but just wanted to uh, want to understand, you know, how did you get your start in, the, in this crazy world of uh, venture capital? Uh, well, I was always uh, what you might call a career investor. I always wanted to do something in investments from like the very, very early childhood. Nice. So once I uh, kind of finished my undergraduate studies and went out of the university, I started working for investment companies. Uh, I did some work for large uh, financial groups. Uh, I did some work for large enterprises, but it was always to do with investments and the uh, venture capital was, mm, I kind of treated it as a small, smallish players. Cause I mean, you know, when I used to uh, billion dollar budgets, you, you look at the, you know, a few mills as something insignificant, but it was a part of a sort of ecosystem and industry. So at some point I decided to give it a try. Uh, I went into venture and I loved it and I keep loving it every, uh, loving it every day since. <laughs> Right, you know, I think and it's super interesting. And how how was your experience at NAFTA Moscow and AAR? Well, what did what were some of your learnings there? Uh well, uh, like I said, they, these were major financial investment groups. Uh, I mean, they did NAFTA Moscow, and <clears throat> I went there straight from the uni, and it was it was a sort of uh, game changing experience for me, to be honest, because. You know, at the university, you could say that they teach you the alphabet, right? Uh, and yeah. then you come to a company and they use those letters to talk slang. <laughs> yeah. So, Got you know, it. there the, the was a lot of practice there. Uh, I, I've done about, I would say about 250 deals, something like that. I counted them. It was a small compact team of less than 10 people basically working there. So we did many deals and deals in all kinds of industries you know uh, it was the early 2000s so there wasn't that much technology then but you know from metal mines to i don't know uh bricks to chemicals to even some startups and te in technology i mean anything and it gave me gave, gave me quite a diverse uh background um, you know, the ability to analyze various industries and ability to find, you know, commonalities. So it, it gave me a great, great preparation for what I do now. And when I moved to AAR, that was a company that we basically managed one of the largest, if not the largest uh, oil and gas companies in Russia at the time. So that got me a perspective on how, uh, you know, big companies operate from the inside, from the very, very sort of uh, top level from the board level all the way down to the you know uh, medium and so, so on and so forth and this is also very useful when you do venture investments because i mean eventually chances are you're going to get exit from your company and you know not necessarily going to be an ipo it might be you know, doing a sale to a large company so mm -hmm. it's it helps to understand how they work uh, how they uh 
decision making processes are made, how decisions are made, how the budgets works, and so on and so forth. And you speak the lingo. Mm, got it. Got it. Interesting. And um, and especially with with uh, you know Tower, um, uh, how did you uh, look at AI? Because um, you know I started off my career in SaaS, but uh, and it's been very recently that I've started working there. But you know, when you started, did you have that vision that you know uh, there'll be a lot of AI companies uh, which uh, would change how technology works? Well, uh, the first time I've uh, actually dealt with a neural network was back at the university. It was uh, sort of 1990s. So, uh, <laughs> it was uh, on a sort of decision making under uncertainty. I think the course was called, and we basically create. This is where I created my first neural net by just you know with a pen and pencil basically and a piece of paper yeah. uh after, and after that i mean obviously i kind of forgot about that but came back to me in 2016 when we first started the first fund uh i'm not that good at delegating things so uh, i knew that the uh, team is going to be rather small so we had to find something that you know uh was rather niche but would have a good investment potential and well we came to this uh, idea of ai uh it was a big mistake obviously because ai is nowhere near niche nowadays it's pervasive it's everywhere right you know it, it was a good mistake to make so yeah basically this is how we started uh with my second fund i'm uh, I'll, I'll probably I hope to make the same mistake again because I mean I'm, I'm again I'm trying to you know make a niche focus I'm going to be focusing on AI in the industry industrial AI it okay. is not 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 that common nowadays uh so you know we'll we'll see how that goes <laughs> okay okay and, and when you say industrial AI do you mean B2B uh, you, you... Yes, yes, B2B in sort of hardcore sort of uh, traditional industries, you know, uh, vehicle metal, just general manufacturing, uh, you know, resource mining, things like that, uh, metallurgy, you know, steel factories and so on and so forth, these kind of things. Got it, got it. I mean, they they, they are large. Uh, These are industries. I always say that, you know, this is like... uh, given money to henry ford back yeah. in the 1920s because i mean these are the industries that you know they, they've they're huge they have matured they you know they provided fantastic returns to the investors who invested in them i don't know 20 30 50 years ago right. and ai is something that's going to give them a second chance you know they, they is going to increase their efficiency and you know they, they're going to gain a lot of uh value right. so i want to right. capture some of that for my investors nice nice got it and um, I was just wondering, you know, uh, when it comes to AI, a lot have been done by um, by big companies like like uh, the Googles um, and the Microsofts, as well as startups. But who do you think will win in AI? Would it be smaller companies or would it be larger companies which has distribution with them? Mm, I, I don't think there's that much of a competition between the, uh, you know, the startups and the incumbents. I mean, for one, you know, uh, incumbents may be clients for the startups, right? So, you know, they both win. It's a win-win for them. Yeah. Uh, if a startup, you know, decides to not sell to the uh, large play and just keep growing, they they eventually become a big company, hopefully. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's no competition there. They're just, you know, probably different stages of development or, you know, there's more of a symbiot, uh, symbiotic relationship, I would say. Got it. And, and how do you, you know, you know a lot of um, 
lot of my friends talk about that AI will take away everybody's jobs. But how do you think you know AI can save the world's economy? Uh, well, I mean, like 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 I said, it, I think it's. Uh... Well, I mean, we, we, we've seen this a uh, few times before, right? When the uh, electricity came, when the, uh, you know, the printing press came. Uh, and I, I don't think it's going to destroy that many jobs. It, it enables efficiency. It expands the economy. It's going to create jobs. It's going to augment jobs. Uh, yes, the jobs are going to be different. But I don't think people are going to, you know, uh, not be a part of the equation, at least for the foreseeable future. Got it. And, and are there any specific industries which you think will be disrupted the, the most? I think you, you already see, you know, writers uh, getting disrupted because of open AI, but are there any uh, jobs you feel that, you know? Uh, well, I, I, I hope to see uh, the traditional industries disruption because, I mean, this, this is where I'm planning to place my bet. I mean, you right. know, uh, I see how uh, uh, old school and cumbersome say, uh, resource mining is and you know there's plenty of opportunities to using the even the currency to the rti there and it's right. just boom it's, it's going to explode it's going to expand hmm. so i hope that got it and um you know recently the the co-founder of DeepMind had mentioned that you know generative ai is just a phase um so what do you think is uh, what's next in uh, interactive ai uh, well, it depends. It depends on what he meant by this interactive AI. AI. Um, from judging from his interview, I think it's just a natural extension of the uh, current generative AI. It's probably just a bit more connected. But I, I don't think that you know uh, AI becoming a sort of self-aware agent, you know, communicating with uh, other AIs and other people is. Uh, it is probably possible even today, but we need to regulate that. We need, I mean, this is, you know, this is very risky. Yeah. And ch ch chances are there's going to be legislation that's going to slow it down. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Because, you know, I recently read the book Powered Elon Musk, and I think he was, he um, really parted ways with the Google founder because he felt that, uh, regulation is going to be is going to be a big factor, but um, you know what needs to be done in order to ensure that you know there are regulations in place. I think Europe has done a great job, but uh, do you think you we should have regulations like crypto market has? Uh, I, I, I think I think we should have regulation, but I would not uh, say that Europe has done a great job. It's done a great job, you know, putting in place lots of regulations, but uh, it seems to me that you know they're just slowing their progress down significantly. And you know, limiting people's ability to work and people's willingness to create startups, uh, for example. And what this does is, you know, uh, this is just probably going to redistribute, you know, entrepreneurs to uh, other uh, other locales, other countries, or other continents where the legislation is less rigid, is less strict. So th this is the. Uh, problem with regulating AI, you know, it needs to be done very, very carefully, because I mean, yes, you want to control it, but you don't want to, you know, put a stop to it, you you can't really stop progress. Right, right, got it. Um, and, you know, when you look at uh, startups, how do you prioritize between, you know, people, traction and market? What do you think is the most important thing? Uh, these are all important, They're probably uh, some of those are more important at different stages of the company. But I mean, yeah, people are, you know, 
the person is someone who drives the business you know he just cannot you know continue without the uh main ideologist if you will at least when you know from the very start but at some point the founder is probably becoming you know a hurdle to his own to his own company and this is the time when you know he needs to hire managers he needs to probably give up some of the power and control and eventually would become you know a shareholder rather than you know the founder owner or the manager of the company so that's that's important obviously a market is something that you know it doesn't have to be there, you know. I, chances are you might create a completely new market from, you know, <laughs> with your startup, just like Nvidia did, for example. Yeah. And traction, you know, you can't really uh, survive without traction. Well, what's the point of uh, having a business with no traction? It is just a hobby. Fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. And, you know, when it comes to uh, the GP and LP relationship, what's the single biggest areas of misalignment between them? Mm, well, I mean, I'm trying my best to align my interests with uh, with my LPs because otherwise, you know, it, it's just unethical to do. But so I'd, I'd say there are just sort of, you know, uh, standard potential conflicts of interest, like, I don't know, say affiliated transactions, like a GP. I've seen cases of, uh, of a GP having a paid job at a portfolio company. This is obviously conflict of interest is probably not. For the benefit of the LPs, uh, charging excessive fees and expenses, and charging them to you, you know, to to the fund rather than to the GPs, it's like you know, legal fees and PR fees and things like that. It's uh, it's not an uncommon practice to you know charge charge those as uh, part of the deals that the fund does, which is probably not correct. The way I sort of mitigated this was, uh, I mean, I I just charge a standard man- management fee. And yeah. I pay everything from that, to, you know, so, so my investors know exactly how much is spent on uh, in their investment, and no more than that. Uh, there's lots of conflicts with the uh, potential LPs when you, you know, when you fundraise, you the, uh, you obviously want to present yourself in the best way, so you get creative with, you know, value in your company. So you know, you cherry pick the stories uh, rather than tell, you know, the aggregate performance. Uh, so that's the nothing special, nothing special, just standard conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. Got it. And 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 what do many, you know, uh, GPC uh, know well that you know LP should know and see more of? Uh they should probably know how many companies fail because <laughs> yeah. they see the aggregate performance of the fund that they may get a distorted view and where this sometimes i would say often especially nowadays leads them to is they start investing themselves mm. but do so in you know concentrated investments in you know one or two companies you can't do that you you know you, you should recreate a portfolio and you should probably, you know, uh, have some professional education or some have a professional manager for you, because otherwise you just, you know, it's just a pure selection bias. You only hear the hear the stories of success, hmm. right. but you don't, you know, you don't know how the uh, how tough things actually are. <laughs> Got it. And and what are some of the biggest ways that you know decision making uh, breaks down in a, in a venture fund? Obviously, if there are a lot of partners in a in a VC firm. Uh, what, what, I did not quite understand your question. What, what, what is it you're asking? 
how is how does the how decisions are made in the yes that's right yeah well well it's always good to have a few people think about this with you i mean i'm a single gp but I mean, I still consult loads and loads of experts in the uh, experts in the field. I mean, without that, it's it's kind of difficult to you know uh, separate the you know the <laughs> good ideas from bad. So the, 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 this is the first thing I do, even before I talk to uh, the company. Well, I mean, I, you know, you know, I, I see the company, I you know get a first touch with them, and then I talk to the experts to see uh, you know you know if that makes sense. If it does, uh, I may have the founder talk to the experts as well just to you know confirm and double check uh coming from the private equity and large uh, sort of company background i always sort of this is probably not standard but i prefer my companies to create some financial models to you know uh chances are these are going to be wrong they're not going to be you know uh producing the correct figures and they're not going to forecast the correct future for the company but this shows how the founder himself knows his company knows his business i mean it, it helps them to think it helps them to show you how they think and it's just a, a good exercise to practice i always do that so you know once the experts agree once the numbers make sense and i can see that the founder knows what he's doing and you know if there is a potential for the for the company to become a unicorn mm. i mean chances are well, it, there's a low chance of the company becoming a unicorn but you know it should be there it should be not zero uh, yeah. this is probably enough uh for me to invest in and obviously i mean i i check to make sure that there's no conflicts in my portfolio i mean i don't practice the uh, having competing companies in their portfolio some funds do but that's not my style hmm. if there are synergies between you know this company and my existing portfolio companies that's great but that's not the deciding factor okay okay connor um, and and what are some of, some of the biggest lessons that you learned from these companies while while building Tavo, uh, especially because you know you've been in the AI space for such a long time hmm well, the main lesson I learned from investments, uh, <laughs> I mean, investments is uh, is not that much finance. It's more psychology, I would say. So you learn a lot about people. And one thing I learned was that people never change. They may learn, but they don't change. And mm. It doesn't necessarily have to be an AI company to teach you that, but it just happened to be in my case. And mm. that's the, that's an important lesson. So you know to check your references. Always you know uh, talk to people who know your founder. You, it provides a great amount of deal of information, and you'll be together for a long time. You need to know that. Hmm. Got it. Interesting. And and what advice would you give to founders who who might have got offers from you know um, from seed firms at uh uh like niche seed firms for smaller rounds and lower valuations, but they are weighing against, you know, larger rounds with higher valuation from multi-stage funds. And what advice would you give to them if they should go for niche uh, seed funds or, you know, multi-stage capital funds? Well, you know, there's lots of money around, even given the current state of affairs and the, uh, you know, venture capital winter and general economy shakedowns. So there's always lots of money, but there's also additional value that an investor can and should, I think, provide. 
So, you know, talk to the investors and ask them what else are they going to you know bring to the table in addition to the money. It might be networking, it might be advice, it might be another I don't know, industry experience. There's lots and lots of things an investor can help the company with. Uh, there are sort of spray and pray investors who just, you know, right. put the money in and do it in lots of companies. I'm not saying this is not the correct way to work. It works. But, you know, uh, I don't do that. I only have 20 companies in the portfolio. And, you know, I was completely against having more because that, that, that then I won't be able to uh, know how they do to work with them. I mean, I always keep in touch with them. There's messengers, phone calls, personal meetings. I know how each of my companies is doing at the moment. And I try my best to help them, probably even when they don't think they need it. <laughs> mm. Got it, got it. Interesting. And I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Mm, I'm not that big a fan of business books, to be honest, but I think that, you know, uh, every profession has the book. It, you know, whether you're a dentist or a market you know, specialist or an investor. So in, in my case, it's this one, Security Analysis yeah, by Graham and Dodd. Uh, it's a very old book. Uh, I think it's the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, but it, it it has a lot to understand how to make investments. I mean, and the principles of the way of thinking has never changed and shouldn't really change. And you know, if these two guys were good enough to teach Warren Buffett, he was their student. Actually, yeah. I think it's worth you know <laughs> hearing them, reading them. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I've read that book. I think it's one of the one of my favorite books. Um, you know, if you could go back in time when you started in the venture capital world, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done things differently? Uh, I would have started earlier. Okay. <laughs> and I would probably got some psychology education, like a proper university course, because that's oh. useful. Oh, interesting. Because I was always more of a finance guy, more of a numbers guy. But you know, when you go into investments, you realize how much it is about psychology and people in general. Yeah. I read somewhere like a VC is more like a B2B sales. It's like a funnel and you, you know, speak to a lot of people. So I don't know if that's true, but um, but that's an interesting analogy. Well, not just in sales, but, you know, when you're fund, doing the fundraising or when you're selling your fund to do, to, to the guy, to the potential portfolio company, because I mean, if there's competition between funds, you obviously want to get in the deal. But even after the investment, you know, post-transaction, when you have the company in the portfolio, there's loads and loads of stuff going on, you know, interpersonal relationships, dealing with the founder. There's a lot... That is not numbers. <laughs> yeah. Mm, interesting. And do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Uh, uh, do you have any favorite online tool, uh, for example? Uh, my favorite online tool has always been a web browser. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, we... I mean, you, you, you just use it to find stuff. And yeah. That's it. Awesome. Um, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Mikhail, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Deva Capital? Oh, welcome. They can check out my website. They can check out my LinkedIn and just ping me. They can, you know, send me an email and cold emails do work. Okay. I might not always reply to them, but I always read them. That's guaranteed. 
Okay. Okay. Got it. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, Amika, thank you so much for taking your time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you very much, Rohit. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.